You're listening to the Celestial Citizen Podcast, and I'm your host, Britt Duffy Adkins. Celestial Citizen is a platform for promoting a more equitable and just vision of planetary settlement beyond Earth. This podcast seeks to provide an opportunity for conversation about how to be a better interplanetary citizen and responsible steward of Earth and the cosmos. By engaging the global public, providing greater access to the space industry, and amplifying a more diverse set of voices, progress in space can equate to progress on Earth. We who are bursting with stardust can become celestial citizens. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Julia Millette and Macley Carroll. When you think about being far away from Earth and looking back and seeing it as just this tiny little dot, almost from a celestial perspective, maybe we can find understanding. Maybe we can find common ground. Maybe we can have that mutual respect. And we have to like make sure and represent that in our language to be more inclusive. And that's embedded in the Outer Space Treaty. We'll discuss the legacy of colonization in outer space, the role that international treaties have played to date, and how we commit to an anti-colonial mindset going forward. How do we not have colonization 2.0 as humans in space? If some super rich company goes there and establishes a trade route before anyone else, or even on behalf of a country, there could be a lot of inequalities that would happen, similar to what happened with the Dutch East India Company. One of the guests on today's show is Julia Millette. Julia is a lifelong space enthusiast and a practicing attorney in the United States. During law school, Julia was a finalist at the 2018 North American Rounds of the Manfred Locks Moot Court and interned at the FCC Satellite Division. Julia has also worked with the Satellite Industry Association and as a consultant researcher with LMI Advisors. My other guest on the show is Macley Carroll. Macley is a graduate of the International Institute of Air and Space Law at Leiden University, where he wrote his master's thesis on the regulation of commercial spaceports worldwide, and is currently an active member of the Diversity Action Team for EGLE, Effective and Adaptive Governance for a Lunar Ecosystem. Macley is the program director for the Caribbean Space Society, that aims to establish a unified Caribbean space agenda. And I'm thrilled to be chatting with you both today. This is actually my first time interviewing two people at once. So thanks so much for joining the Celestial Citizen podcast. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you, Brett. It's great to be here. So Julia and Meckley, tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you became interested in space law and governance. I've always been fascinated by space. I grew up in a very rural, remote area, and so... Sometimes I joke that kind of the only thing we had to do for fun was basically looking up at the sky. You know, we got to see the northern lights and everything like that. You realize how small you are. You're just kind of this small 
tiny speck on a speck. It makes me think of the pale blue dot by Carl Sagan, you know, or just a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. So I had that sense as a young child, and that has stayed with me throughout life. I also really love sci-fi and fantasy. And so, you know, obviously, like those were things that I found to be interesting. What will be our future as we venture further into the celestial sphere? But I didn't really see how it could apply to, I guess, a practical career because I didn't go into the sciences. And I kind of assumed, okay, well, if you're not going to be an astrophysicist, space is just a hobby. But when I started looking into a career in law, that's when I found out very happily that there's something called space law. And it's very vast and very broad. And really any type of law that you can think of could actually be applied to the context of outer space. And so that's kind of where I started my journey and my interest with space law. And that's continued to this day. Awesome. And what about you, Meckley? Yes, I have a similar story to Julia and maybe like a lot of people where you feel like space is fundamental to your very being. You know, it's just something ever since childhood, I've always been connected to space. I didn't take it seriously or to make it like a passion it was until I was in my first year of law school. And I remember it was 2011. And that's when they unveiled the spaceport in America, in New Mexico. And I remember when I saw that, I literally thought it was like the six, seven, eight wonder of the world kind of thing, just all in once. And I was like, it's really really cool design. It's like, it just snowballed after that though. Then I started saying like, there must be law that regulates space. So I Googled it, space law, Leiden came up and then they've been on that journey ever since. Wow. Yeah. The rest is history, right? (laughs) So recently at the International Association for the Study of the Commons, you both gave a joint presentation that discussed the legacy of colonization in outer space. Could you give some background on that talk and briefly explain what a colonial mindset towards space looks like? So kind of a little bit of background just on like how we decided to come up with this presentation is that we had kind of both, again, working together at the Space Court Foundation, we both kind of talked about how we've been to a lot of different space policy related events. And this wasn't something we ever heard people talk about, but it was something that we both felt was really important. So it was just kind of like, let's go to this thing. Let's put this together and present it and see what happens. And I think we were both so pleasantly surprised, not only to have the chance to present, but also to realize that there's this whole community of people out there who are really talking about this issue, looking at this issue. And so even though, you know, we personally, hadn't really come across people discussing this in the spheres that we had been a part of, I think it was really impactful to realize that this is something that a lot of people care about and are concerned about. Yeah, very well said, Julia. It was a pleasant surprise. I think, was this the first year they actually decided to do it on Space Commons? We had no idea who they'd expect. And I always have to give it up to Julia because of the topic. Like, there's a section that focuses on the Bogota Declaration, and I got my master's in air and space policy But like we never talked about it out of the five main space treaties that they have out there. That's not included in it. Julia was the one who put it to my attention and it was a really, it kind of blew my mind. So the way the Bogota Declaration goes, they consider the geostationary orbit above you natural resources, right? Like it's part of their aerospace. They own it as a sovereign state. And then that goes against the Outer Space Treaty, Article 2, which is saying there's no national appropriation. It gets a lot deeper than that when you look at like the historical context and things about space law. The Bogota Declaration is maybe one of the easiest issues to point to, to show how colonialism really has kind of created inequities in the power dynamic in what happens in outer space. 
because all of the nations that had been participating in that and had signed that declaration, none of them were spacefaring at the time and none of them really could carry any of that political weight. And so it was very easy for all of the space powers at that time to say, we're just going to ignore this. That and some of the other things we also presented kind of shows that Although the outer space treaties, I think, have some really important language in them that we can all harness going forward in order to make the exploration and use of outer space be more equitable. But we also have to look at what individual actors were doing, how the international community accepted or rejected efforts by the global south or non-spacefaring nations to have a say in outer space. And I do want to kind of circle back too to provide some context for folks as well, because in your presentation, you go into some detail about Article 2 of the Outer Space Treaty and sort of how that plays into all of this as well. Do you mind kind of just giving some background on that specific article of the Outer Space Treaty? So I think one of the interesting things about the time period in which the Outer Space Treaty was being negotiated is that really it was happening simultaneously with efforts by the U.N., to basically put an end to colonization. And so in 1960, the UN basically came out and said, okay, we want to put an end to colonial rule and want to find ways to do this. And so at that same time, space powers and folks at the UN were working on coming up with some sort of an outer space treaty. So Article 2 actually had very little debate. And Article 2 says that, that there can be no claim of sovereignty in outer space and by means of use as well. So even if you're not going out there and sticking your flag and saying, this is my land, if you're essentially blocking others from the ability to access a celestial body or part of outer space, then that could be construed as claiming sovereignty. So Article 2 very clearly lays out there can be no claim of sovereignty on a celestial body or in outer space. And those who are working on putting the treaty together, you know, very clearly had that mindset. We don't want these same sort of land grabbing, colonial rush to claim territories. We're not trying to repeat that in our next steps as human beings. That's definitely something that I think, as you pointed out, there is this community of folks that, you know, is quite passionate about making sure that that doesn't happen again. And I hope that after this conversation, this reaches a lot more people who maybe weren't as aware of sort of what's going on in space. We hope that this podcast reaches people not only in the space industry, but those outside of it as well. And I want to circle back to some of your previous statements. You made the point that this topic was really not mainstream. So this wasn't something that you both found was being discussed in sort of the more popular channels of the space industry. It still is, I think, a bit of a niche conversation, unfortunately. And that also makes me think about what you both just said about the Bogota Declaration and also even the Moon Agreement, which have largely been ignored by major space powers. So my question for you both is, why do you think that is? Why do you think that this topic is being ignored at both a legal level, but even just at a industry conversational level in terms of like how we think about future space exploration? At least on the industry level, you know, you could just say it's profit at the end of the day. Like there's a lot of big money in space, or it seems to be a lot of big money in space. You have analysts talking about like it's going to be like 240 million in by 2040 kind of thing or trillion, I'm sorry. It has a lot to do with profit. And in terms of the language we use too, there's a nice thing that we found out uh, during IASC 
from Natalie Trevino, she actually had this great way of talking about of how we frame the language because it's dangerous to get into that colonial mindset. So when we talk about frontier, like a frontier isn't something that's explored. It's like you're pushing your way through. So that speaks on a subconscious level and even colonized space. That's you always hear colonize Mars. We really don't want to get into a colonialism 2.0. So we kind of have to change the language, but the language isn't being changed. So that's why this is one of the reasons why it's a very uh, rare topic to hear in the industry. That's definitely something that I think about often. And so I'm glad that you brought this up because you're right. Like, I think there is kind of like this frontier language or something like that. It instead changes from humans just wanting to explore and be curious to then shifting to humans want to conquer. And I think that those are two really different things, obviously, the latter being a very dangerous mindset. But it's definitely something that, you know, to your point, it frustrates me as well to hear people talk about lunar or Martian colonies and not either realize or not care that that's a problematic way of phrasing it. But that being said, I also think that it is a little bit difficult, frankly, to find non-colonial language when we're trying to talk about living in space. So, for instance, I often talk about with Celestial Citizen, like I prefer to say cities or communities in space. But sometimes I feel like I lose people on that because they feel like that's too many years out. That's too far into the future. And so they want to know about the very early stages of a small scale human presence. And so sometimes it feels like base or settlement are the only way to get people to understand where you are in the timeline of things. But the former gives off this like very militaristic or nationalistic feel. And the latter is also problematic. I'm sitting here literally staring at my copy of the book, Settler Colonialism. And so is there better terminology to use for this early phase of life on another celestial body? Or is it perhaps the fact that that phase of humans exploring and relocating to a new place has never actually been done successfully in an anti-colonial manner? Yeah, not to my knowledge. But I also like when you're saying, yeah, look for new terminology to use, like migrate to Mars, migrate to the moon. Julia, did you have any thoughts on this as well in terms of different terminologies we can use for that really early phase? I guess one thing that we can sort of differentiate a little bit and is important to think about is that oftentimes in the past, the colonial language that was used on Earth, the idea was that the lands that were being invaded by, generally speaking, the European colonizers were terra nullis. It was blank land. It was nothing there. And that essentially wiped out the sense of humanity, community, infrastructure of the people who are already living in those lands. They weren't considered people. Their way of living wasn't considered real way of living for humans. And so we're in a little bit of a different situation when we talk about the moon and Mars with regard to people. But I think it's also important to think about what does it mean for us to be stepping into these new celestial bodies? And although there are not people there, it is still a new place. And I think to be able to come up with other terms for talking about it that don't harken back to that same sort of disregard for the place, the people, the things that you're arriving at, I think is really important. It sounds like based on sort of both of your thoughts, we need to work harder to kind of think of some new and innovative terminology that feels more inclusive, something that at least respects what's there. Yeah, I mean, all too often, I hear this all the time. I hear like, 
well, the moon is dead. We make these value judgments where we say, well, the science on Mars is more important. Therefore, we're going to take greater measures to protect Mars than the moon. And to me, that kind of mindset, I don't know, maybe correct me if I'm wrong here, but to me, that kind of feels like colonialism right there. We're imposing our own value judgments on these different celestial bodies. Just thinking about the moon and just sort of recent events, I was reading an article that the tide of the full moon played an integral role in getting the cargo boat unstuck from the Suez Canal. So we can't take our moon for granted. It does actually help our life here on Earth as well. And to say the moon is dead is, I think, certainly not the case. So I think we need to be cognizant about how our presence on other celestial bodies are going to affect those bodies. And fortunately, the writers of the Outer Space Treaty were thinking about that as well. There is language about harmful contamination to celestial bodies and making sure that our efforts when we reach other celestial bodies are cognizant and considerate. If you think about it, it's a huge step considering how little regard we as humans have given for our own planet. I think, unfortunately, we have so much learning to do still on this planet, clearly, which I am a big proponent of sort of not stopping our interest, our exploration, our curiosity in space. But at the same time, we need to do so much work here on Earth simultaneous to all of that so that we can make sure that we're not just repeating the same mistakes. And both of you have mentioned Natalie Trevino, her work with anti-colonialism. So Natalie is specifically, and I haven't spoken with her personally, but I know from some of Natalie's work that there is this concept of anti-colonialism being different from decolonizing outer space. And I'm wondering if you both could sort of walk through what those differences are. First, I just want to shout her out because yeah, she's the coolest doctor I've met in a while. And I'm not actually familiar with that part, but if I was just going to go out on a limb, I'd say just even just the words, right? Decolonization, anti-colonization, decolonization has like the presumption that there was someone colonized there in the first place. So we don't have that with anti-colonization. We're just trying to prevent that from happening. Yeah. And what we found interesting in our presentation was that we were looking at the efforts at decolonization here on Earth and how they were playing out on an international scale at the very same time that humans began their first steps exploring in outer space. So it was just a really interesting moment to see at almost exactly the same time, we have a worldwide recognition that colonization as it has functioned on Earth is actually abhorrent and not something we want to continue as humans. And at the very same time, as humans, we took our first steps into the celestial sphere. So I think as we continue efforts at decolonization on Earth, there also needs to be efforts at anti-colonization as we go into space. How do we not have colonization 2.0 as humans in space? So what does an anti-colonial outer space look like? Because colonialism is just so deeply ingrained in so many different aspects of our society. I'd just really be interested to kind of hear your sort of visions of what that might look like. Some of the work I do with SJAC, like you said, is with the Eagle Group, the Effective and Adaptive Governance for Lunar Governance. And one of the things that we're talking about is just getting more stakeholders in it. You just don't want to get only countries in it. You want to get national organizations. You want to get scientists involved. 
it needs to be a bigger discussion at the table. Outer Space Treaty was really good for what it is, but like now there's a lot of new things that are coming in that are just taking advantage of that this is a treaty from 1967. So you have like the Artemis Accords, which is very cool in concept and it supports the Artemis mission and Artemis Gateway. That's when we get the first woman on the moon in 2024. But with that is that it's the US-centric kind of instrument. So you want to get more people involved in the table. I'm glad that you brought up the Artemis Accords because I do want to circle back on that point as well. Of course, you know, the Artemis Accords are written from a U.S. perspective. And so in your presentation, you sort of bring up this really intriguing claim that the Artemis Accords are actually a colonial mechanism. Can you expand upon that idea? That's one of the school of thoughts happening there. Imagine just like in the industry, a very U.S.-focused industry, a lot of people might not agree with that. But the countries that have access that are signatories to the Artemis Accord get to have help with the Lunar Gateway mission, too. And that's, you know, an establishing a lunar station. So that's a kind of an incentive to get people to join. And that's what's happened in the past with colonialism. The spaceport in Kenya that was owned by Italy was one of those examples. They had it since the 60s, I think, as well. But recently they came with an agreement where once they start launching from there again, they'll give at least 50% of the profits to the Kenyan government. So that's a way to move forward in that. And You know, just given that the Artemis Accords, so much of it is around protecting private interests and things like that. What role do you both think private space companies will play in the continuation of a colonial mentality? And how can we avoid that? Like, is there a way to to work with private space companies such that there's just greater balance, that they're still able to do whatever projects or things that they intend to, but it's less exploitive. It's moving away from sort of that colonialism attitude. You know, not all companies have the same concept of what they want to do in space. But I think one thing that is common is, look, if you're a for-profit company, you're trying to get some profit, right? And so that's going to drive what you're doing. But innovation is really important. And I know an argument that's often made is like, look, we need to have funds. We need to have the ability to innovate. These are risky things we're trying. It's very technical. It's very difficult. We need to be able to have the funds to do what we need to do in space. And when we figure these things out, it will inevitably benefit all humankind. And I think that's where maybe the conversation can be had is, okay, well, how are these things truly going to benefit all humankind? How are they going to be for the benefit of countries or of people in countries who have been historically left out? And I think those are the types of conversations it is important to have with the private sector and to hope that they're talking about and thinking about. And I think also, as Mac Lee said, inclusion is really important. Who's sitting at the table? Whose thoughts are being put forward? As people who enjoy science fiction and enjoy the idea of a realm in outer space and whatnot, like you said, we're humans, we're explorers, and we have curiosity. None of this is bad, but it's who gets to do it, who gets to have a say. And I think those are the important conversations that have to be had, the private industry level and the government level, and obviously at the international level. You both have brought up on separate occasions sci-fi and sort of how that also influences a lot of this. And I know 
the end of your presentation at the IAC conference, you also shared some quotes from Afrofuturist writers. Do you think Afrofuturism and other diverse sci-fi perspectives can actually better inform positive legal and governance outcomes in space? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Diversity of thought always helps with that. And Afrofuturism, just like any other genre, and it's an old genre, and they had it from Sun Ra's first album. Like, it's been making waves. And just like commercially, there was a lot of Afrofuturism elements in Black Panther. So you could talk about how ways to have the city more intertwined with nature, which also is intertwined with space. So there's uh, a lot of possibilities for Afrofuturism to positively affect what we see now. I feel like now after you bring that up, I'm going to have to go rewatch Black Panther as well to kind of now think about it from a space city planning perspective. So that's a really interesting point. And Julia, did you have any thoughts on that topic as well? Again, I know we've mentioned her a few times, but that's something that Natalie Trevino talks about in her work is that how important it is to get different perspectives from various groups of people and various forms of thought. The quotes that we put up, they really inspired our whole presentation because speaking for myself, I think when I've gone to different space law and policy events and whatnot, it's sort of like, well, we have to be pragmatic. It's all about pragmatism and what's really going to work and, you know, what can we really get companies and countries to agree to? And it's very much, you know, here we are talking about doing all these amazing things in outer space, yet we can't really think outside the box in terms of equity and in terms of inclusion. And so I think that this concept that Adrian Marie Brown and Walida and Marsha talk about is any sort of social justice change is considered science fiction to people until it really happens, but that we have to kind of allow ourselves that opportunity to think that and imagine that. And it just fits in so well when we're talking about space activities because people are thinking big, they're thinking huge. The type of innovation that's being done is amazing. So why can't we also have a space for innovation in terms of having a more equitable and inclusive landscape? And the treaties, they do have language there that supports that. It's such a great point that you bring up because the social innovation, when married with the technological innovation, could be transformative. That should really excite people, like that opportunity for us to really make meaningful and lasting change. It's huge. And I hope that people start to think a little bit more from that perspective. And I think we have so many great space entrepreneurs now, but how many of them are really focused on these issues of social justice in space? You know, not not a lot. And so I think if we could have more conversations about that where we're really allowing ourselves to just completely reimagine, like we don't have to just repeat what we've done historically. In fact, we don't want to. So how do we just make this a much better world and eventually worlds for people, right? And so I think that that's a really critical component to all of this as well. Circling back on the private space company aspect of things as well, I did want to follow up on this because as you're thinking about these space futures and sort of like what they might look like, are you more concerned about a space future that's dominated by corporations or one that is more nationalistic? For me, I'd say it's more corporations if I had to choose, but they often do go hand in hand. 
but you know, at least the space treaties, they outright regulate states. And even though they regulate as agents of a state or a country, they do regulate corporations. There's a lot of people thinking that they don't. Every once in a while, you'll see Elon say something really loose, like, oh, Mars is going to have my rules as part of your terms of services for Starlink. I mean, he can't really do that, but it gets people all hyped up and everything. So yeah, I'd say corporations, yeah, they're evil. Not all of them, just kidding. (laughs) And Julia, on that same vein, when you hear people like Elon Musk kind of making these declarations about what they view as legal in space and what they plan to do on, on Mars, I mean, are you worried that some of that commentary, some of those actions actually then lead to precedent building? Like, is that a concern from a legal perspective? I'm thinking of the Tesla Roadster that he launched into space, and that was very controversial. But then it sort of is precedent setting that he's not necessarily adhering to the same planetary protection rules that others are, or that he has this different idea of what would be a legal structure on Mars. So can we sort of just disregard it as saying, oh, that's just Elon being Elon? Or is it actually more serious than that? When we're talking about individual private actors, it kind of depends. Not sure if you're familiar, there was a case with an individual named Nemitz several years back. He had claimed ownership of an asteroid and he wanted to charge the U.S. government a fee for essentially visiting his asteroid. And so there's a case there again saying, look, you as a private person, you can't claim ownership of an asteroid, even though the treaties say sovereignty can't be claimed theoretically by a state. But because states regulate their citizens and have jurisdiction and control over their citizens, their citizens can't just claim sovereignty as a private person. So I think that was a very interesting test case for the United States. But yeah, I mean, someone who has a huge amount of influence, it could become concerning at some point. In order for something to really become considered as customary international law, there has to be a lot of countries that show either through the laws that they put into place or their actions that they believe that there's a norm that they must follow, that they're legally obligated to follow it. One rogue person here and there making statements isn't necessarily going to change things from a legal precedent, but I think from an opinion precedent for sure, I think Even now, I'll say even when I was in law school, plenty of people, when I said I was interested in space law, other lawyers had no idea that that was a thing. It's not really something that's necessarily on people's radar, but Elon Musk's comments are certainly on people's radar. And so, yeah, I think having discourse about what should be the steps to take in and what are the legal parameters for activities in outer space, it's important so that you don't just have someone kind of like at least setting up ideas in people's minds. Oh, well, that should be fine. That should be okay. The court of public opinion can sometimes still be influential. So that's a really interesting perspective because it's something that I worry about, you know, when I read these, as you both put it, kind of like rogue individuals or rogue tweets or things like that, where I'm like, oh, you know, it's a really like damaging way of viewing things. But you make great points too, that from a legal perspective, there needs to be a lot more evidence of that, which hopefully does not happen. For people that might still not be convinced by our conversation that there is a problem with colonialism in space. And I'm bringing this up because I hear it a lot from people where they don't understand how it can be colonialism in space if there's no people already existing on the moon or Mars. And so I think they also don't necessarily understand some of the inherent advantages that 
traditional colonizers have had and will, you know, at least until we start to change things, continue to have in space. I was hoping that maybe you both could sort of outline a little bit what some of those advantages are so that people could better understand sort of the starting place for different actors in space. Yeah, I think one way to look at it, like if you want to do like a historical analogy, is the Dutch East India Company. Like once they controlled the trade route, that's how a nation gets put up and they get to establish outposts that turn into colonies. And it's just like a pattern like that. I don't want to say use any company as an example, but if some super rich company goes there and establishes a trade route before anyone else, or even on behalf of a country, it'll just increase the GDP and a whole lot of inequalities that would happen, similar to what happened with the Dutch East India Company. One of the things we touched on in our presentation that I think can be really telling is just looking at information on the spaceports that exist around the world. For example, Europe's spaceport is in French Guiana, which is technically part of France. And that is the only spaceport in South America that has successfully launched satellites into orbit. If you look on the continent of Africa, France formerly had a spaceport in Algeria. And after Algeria gained independence in the 1960s, the spaceport was shut down by France and they relocated to French Guiana. The other spaceport in the African continent is located in Kenya. Macklee mentioned it earlier, and it's controlled by the Italian Space Agency. And literally, I think it was in December of 2020, the two countries finally both agreed to basically a more equitable sharing of profits for future launches. There haven't been launches from the Broglio spaceport in Kenya since the late 80s, but they are actually looking into starting to have it usable for satellite launches in the near future. And so this would be the first time that Kenya is actually getting something out of the use of their land, which I think is brings us back to the Bogota Declaration. Those countries that signed it were all along the world's equator, right? They were equatorial nations. And so the orbit above them was what they were thinking about. The geostationary orbit is such an important orbit for satellites. And so they were thinking, you know, how can we leverage this just based on our locations? Obviously, that's been shot down. You can't claim sovereignty in outer space that we've mentioned, but they do have sovereignty over their land. But even so, we see that colonialism has allowed the European Space Agency in France to use essentially a colony, a modern day colony in French Guiana as their launching port. And the Italian Space Agency has this launching port in Kenya, but Kenya really hasn't been getting really much of anything for it in all this time. So I think while sure, there aren't people living in outer space colonialism is tied to our activities in outer space in a very real way. It just can't be ignored. You know, maybe an important next step is kind of starting with spaceports and understanding how we can have agreements and arrangements and partnerships that start to deconstruct that like colonial mindset in the way that they're set up. Because I'm sure there are ways to make it so that it's beneficial for all parties. But you're absolutely right. Like as it stands today, I mean, when, gosh, when you were just outlining sort of the history there and the current situation with spaceports, I mean, it's, it's fairly shocking because I think a lot of people probably aren't necessarily aware of that. But you're right. I mean, it's a crystal clear picture of why colonialism continues to still plague the space industry. 
I mean, it's profits. We're talking about profits at the end of the day. That's why it makes sense. A good point that this is happening. And you see it in the spaceport in New Mexico. There's a lot of people protesting it too because they're like taking the, the city the, of truth and consequences and the state in general a lot of money when they could be allocating those resources to something else and there still hasn't been a flight from there. It was made 2011 and it's just been out there for a decade. I completely agree. A spaceport is a great way to start. And speaking of my thesis, another spaceport I focused on was the proposed spaceport in Hawaii, in Kona. And one of the reasons why it's been proposed for so long, since maybe like 2008, and hasn't been passed is because it has to pass an environmental assessment. Because you could imagine having a spaceport out there will be terrible for the environment. But like, there must be a way to maybe con- like think of a spaceport that considers the environment, almost like the airport I think in Singapore that like, has like a jungle inside. You could do something like that. From both an urban planning perspective, but then also like from an architecture perspective as well. Like who is planning truly like a sustainable spaceport as possible? Like that's a really, really interesting point because that's something I was just thinking about as well as you were talking about that. It's sort of like in urban planning, we talk all the time about people that live close to like toll booths or to highways or things like that. Like they are disproportionately impacted by pollutants, by other sort of like harmful factors in their environment. And so, of course, that's a natural question for spaceports. Like, what is going to be that impact and how do we minimize and mitigate it for the communities in which these spaceports are being built? And even like what's going on right now in Boca Chica with SpaceX, like I think that's a really interesting example from an environmental perspective. So I think that you're right. I mean, that's really important to think about because obviously, like once again, it sort of feels like we're repeating history in a lot of ways because we always do this, right? We always sort of have historically taken advantage of the richer, the wealthier countries have been able to sort of like move their dirtier, less sustainable activities that are very harmful for the environment and very polluting. Like they move those to other places. Like who is actually going to pay for the environmental impacts, not only from a financial perspective, but just from a quality of life perspective. And you see spaceports popping up everywhere too. It's sort of something about Japan thinking of doing a space, they drew a concept of one, like a floating spaceport. Yeah, they're just popping up everywhere. Since you're both very involved with the Space Court Foundation, I was hoping that you both would be able to talk a little bit more about the nature of this organization and also how others might get involved. In short, like the Space Court Foundation, we're a 501c3, and we try to increase accessibility to space law and policy for all. As the Director of International Outreach and Diversity, part of my role is to provide access and resources for BIPOC communities and just minorities in general looking for opportunities in space law and policy, understanding and dismantling the hurdles that are often faced, like internships, which Julia is in charge of. And we're doing a lot of different panels. We do panels, we have interview series. We just launched our second interview for our Women of Color in Space series, and we use that to highlight experiences of minorities in the space sector so they could share that. We just give them a platform so they could share their work and express their difficulties as trailblazers in the scene. And we also have a section where they could give advice for future students and like new graduates. And so with the internship program, like Meckley said, we're a nonprofit organization. They're volunteer internships. But one of the great things about it is that anybody from any country can apply to be an intern. And so right now we have interns from five different continents actually working with us on collecting research and analyzing. And we get together, obviously, virtually and meet and talk about space law and policy. And so I think... It's such a cool thing because 
you have that diversity of perspective, people from all over the world coming together. We all share this common interest in outer space and space activities and law and policy, but we all have our various different perspectives that we're bringing to the table. And so it's the great opportunity for interns to not only get good law and policy research experience and writing experience, but to really become connected to people all over the globe and have a chance to have a platform for their thoughts. We always try to encourage interns to publish or to present. Two of the people who are interns with our organization actually presented at the same conference that we were at at the IASC. So it's a great organization in that I think it really truly lives up to that idea of outer space being for the benefit of all humankind because we have this global reach and ability to bring people together and, you know, bring our common interests to the table. I mean, I love that. I love that there's that really like global focus and things like that. And the fact that you're encouraging interns, as you said, to publish and to participate in conferences. I mean, that's really critical. And it's such a great skill set for people to be developing as well. And also to just get all of these different diverse ideas and perspectives out there. It really sounds like an amazing organization. And the Space Court Foundation I saw has an upcoming project that sounds incredibly interesting called Stellar Decisis. What can you share with the audience about this upcoming initiative? So it's an animation series that we have coming out, and it's basically like an SVU situation in space. We'll show the situation that happens, like satellites crashing into each other or based on real space law, and then we have it get played out. You'll see what happens in the courtroom. So it's going to be really exciting. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. Wow, I'll definitely be looking forward to checking that out. One of the things we try to do with our content is really try to kind of make some of these sort of like strange, difficult, nebulous, theoretical issues of how law applies in space, try to make them just more accessible and clear. And so I think the animated series is a great way to do that. And who doesn't love a good courtroom drama, right? No, and and that's super important because sometimes I worry that people that aren't lawyers or aren't working in the space industry that sort of they get hung up on the terminology because it's sort of it can sometimes feel very abstract. Maybe it's frustrating to sort of work through all these like big words, big phrases that are used in the space law field. So I feel like what you're doing and what the Space Court Foundation is doing there is really interesting to try to make it more digestible and accessible for people so that nobody sort of feels like scared away engaging with this topic. You know, certainly we want everybody's opinions, everybody's thoughts. And I guess to kind of wrap things all together, what is the big take-home message that you want people to leave this conversation with? I definitely subscribe to the school of Dr. Trevino. So I wanted to say that space is for the benefit of all humankind. And we have to like make sure and represent that in our language to be more inclusive for everyone. And that's embedded in the Outer Space Treaty. We have to think about our past. We have to think about the political situation between countries. We have to think about colonization on Earth. The fact that so many nations at the time the first human went into outer space were still under colonial rule. And so we have to consider that if we truly want to be equitable as we go into the realm of outer space as humans. And Celestial Citizen is all about the idea that humans can become not only better stewards of Earth, but also better interplanetary citizens. In your opinion, what is one important way in which people can work toward becoming celestial citizens today? Be more inclusive, like communicate with each other, have the conversation, like things like this, like Celestial Citizen Podcast, 
like listen to other people talk, have diversity of thought and voice, just communicate with each other. Yeah. And that just made me think back to like, when I get really down on the state of the world, which happens to me a lot (laughs) these days, you know, I go back to reading Pale Blue Dot by Carl Sagan. And it just puts things in perspective. And I think when you think about being far away from Earth and looking back and seeing it as just this tiny little dot and that here we all are together and that, you know, so many of the things, so much of the hatred, the things that political ambition, all these things that separate us and cause so much pain in our world. If we look at ourselves almost from a celestial perspective Maybe we can find understanding. Maybe we can find common ground. Maybe we can have that mutual respect for each other. I just think that's so powerful to kind of, again, step outside ourselves and like look back on our small little earth. Wow. Yeah. You both had really wonderful answers there. I think those are both really inspiring takes on that. So for the last part of the interview, we like to try something a little different. And this is just a lightning round of quick questions. You can feel free to give a brief explanation if you want as to why you picked what you did. Uh, Are you ready? Ready. Okay. Would you rather live on the moon or Mars? Moon. So what would be your lunar job in the future? Maybe a lunar park ranger. Get to check out the nature or help with the nature out there. Oh, I like that. What about you, Julia? Um, I really like being a lawyer. <laughs> so I mean, there's going to be demand for it. So why not? I've always thought it'd be interesting, though, to like have something where you're kind of at the cusp between the dark side of the moon and the sun facing side of the moon. So I don't really know what my job would be there. But I've always thought it would be cool to like have to be around that area. That's a good location. So living on another celestial body, your favorite hobby would be what? Mine would be listening to music. I'd have to be listening to music of the old home, aka Planet Earth. <laughs> you know, just because the music would be crazy. What you know, whatever gets produced on a celestial body. So yeah, oh, that's a good point. I mean, I would like to hope that a lot of my current hobbies will be my hobbies. You know, reading, art. But yeah, I can imagine probably hiking would be hobby on the moon, and just, just to be able to walk with less gravity. That's got to be fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's definitely going to be fun. But yeah, lunar art too. Man, that would be, could you imagine? I mean, that would be very inspiring. I'm sure you'd be able to create some really interesting stuff. Okay. Outer space treaty or moon agreement? I'll say outer space treaty because I like the whole benefit for all humankind aspect of it. I mean, the poor moon agreement, it just doesn't get any love. You know, everyone's like, oh, it's a failed treaty. It's a, I love the moon agreement. (laughs) It's great. I mean, I think the outer space treaty we can use it more for yeah. more things. But I just want to give a little shout out to the moon agreement because it's much deserved. It deserves a shout out. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay, the last book that you read. We'll start with Julia. I, well, I'm uh, currently rereading Dune in advance of oh. the, the movie coming out. Yeah. Because it's been a few yeah, years nice. since I read it. Very excited about that. What about you, Meckley? I'm probably going to say Watchmen. I'm, I'm into comics, so... And I was traveling for my partners and like, that's the best way, like when you're on the road. So, And since you both are sci-fi fans, because this has come up a lot today, so this is great. What's your favorite sci-fi movie? Mine would be Interstellar because it's a movie about love. That whole quote when she says, um, yeah, love is the only thing that can transcend space and time. That's like, I was like, oh, that's so true. Yeah. I love Interstellar. It's such a good film. Yeah. It's beautiful. I don't know about favorite movie. Can I do show instead? 
Yeah, yeah, go okay. for it. I love The Expanse. It is just, it is so good. And I really think like anyone who's seriously thinking about these issues should watch The Expanse because that show is really thinking about it, you know? Like that could be our future. Yes, like the whole dynamics between like the belt and Mars and Earth and like all this stuff, it's super interesting. You're right. I mean, if if you are at all interested in space law or governance, like you have to watch The Expanse. You just have to. It's so interesting. Since you both watch it, then who is your favorite character on The Expanse? I mean, I'm kind of partial to Drummer. <laughs> just, I know. I do love Drummer. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't know. They're all like, all the characters are so great. I think the show is just so well done because you really just care about all the characters so much. But I just love Drummer, especially this last season. I really feel like, you know, she was in a tough spot, but she got done what she needed to get done. Yeah, like it changes for me all the time, I feel like, which makes it a good show because you can relate also to the characters. But I do like Drummer, Amos, and um, Klaus Ashford. I like. I heard he has a completely different depiction in the book, though. But like the way they showed him in the show, yeah, he was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Good, good picks there. Okay, a place you'd most like to travel to after the COVID nineteen pandemic is over? Anywhere that's not the grocery store. <laughs> no. Um, literally anywhere literally yeah like literally (laughs) anywhere because like the only place I've been is pretty much the grocery store which is great but I don't know I think that's a perfectly uh perfectly good answer for that (laughs) I'm partial to islands so like I'd want to go to Hawaii I've been there like once maybe like a decade ago but I would really love to go there okay what would you name the first city on the moon and I know this is a loaded question because here we were just talking about anti-colonialism and I feel like naming cities is actually like a really... I, I was about really to be different. like, I don't think I would want that responsibility. I feel it's like it should be put to a committee. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, we can... Yeah, that can be the answer too. You know, I mean, it's interesting because when I was thinking about that, I was like, oh, this is an interesting question. We've asked it before, but it's an interesting one to ask on the podcast when uh, yeah, we're talking about anti-colonialism. I got to say, though, I love that NASA recently designated the the landing area on Mars as Octavia Butler. Yes. I love that homage to her because, again, talking about sci-fi, her, her work is amazing. So, But I certainly personally would not want to have the responsibility of naming a city. <laughs> I think you're right. I think it has to be a collective approach to, like, how we do it. And I think that would be, a, like, a way to also inspire a lot of people to sort of, like, be a part of the process, too, which is exciting. But Mac Lee, if you have an idea here, like go for it, like throw it out there. Oh, no, it would be something like real basic, like Moonopolis or something. As long as it's not like, I don't know if you watch that show for all mankind, but the fact that they call their lunar base Jamestown, I'm like, oh. Oh, no. I haven't seen it. I heard that's a really good show too. Like it's almost like on the level of Expanse. Well, okay. I'm very partial to the Expanse. So I wouldn't put it on that level, but it is very interesting because it's like one of those alternate histories. It does create like just a different way of thinking about it and like how we think about the Apollo era. So sometimes I wish like it doesn't go far enough for me, but it does at least start to like present some interesting questions. And my friend Bailey Burns and I are actually, we do like little reaction videos to it actually, because um, just there's interesting things to talk about as a result of what gets presented in the show. But definitely there's still things about it where I'm like, no, why did we choose that? But anyway, okay, and last one. Finish this sentence. In 50 years, we'll all be what? Oh, we'll all be in a galactic federation. Mm, like what happened Interesting. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I don't, I honestly don't know. 
dangerous to predict the future. Yeah, so, you know, really. sometimes, sometimes it's easier just to kind of like take it day by day. But. I've always wanted those hoverboards from um, Back to the Future to show up. So maybe, you know, because they didn't make it by the time, whenever it was yeah. a couple of years ago when we finally got to the to the future part of Back to the Future. And I was like, oh, no, no hoverboards. Yeah. So maybe in the next 50 years, we'll actually all have them. That'd that would be, cool. be fun. Yeah. yeah, I like that. Well, I think that's all the time that we have for today. Thank you, Julia and Mackley, for joining Celestial Citizen Podcast. I'm so glad that we had this conversation. And I really hope that going to open the door for many other conversations like this to start taking place on how we avoid colonialism on Earth and, of course, also in space. So thank you again for speaking with me today. Thank you. Thank you. Love what you're doing. It's your great host, too. It makes it really easy. Yeah, thanks so much for for having us. It was really fun. And before I roll the closing credits and wrap up, I also want to give a special shout out to a member of the Celestial Citizen community that shared their vision this past week on social media for what excites them most about our collective future in space. So Rick G. wrote a sort of fresh start where this explosion in space exploration will foster unity, collaboration, and cooperation, both in the technical goals being pursued, but more importantly, have the same effect in our national and global social position. Lofty pursuits have a way of bringing out the best of people and allowing us to collectively celebrate successes and break down barriers. So thanks for sharing your vision for the future, Rick. And if you would like to share your thoughts on this podcast, then be sure to let us know on social media what you hope for in our collective future in space. Three, two, one. We have liftoff. And to all you listeners out there, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Celestial Citizen Podcast. This episode would not be possible without the terrific work of this show's editor, Victor Figueroa. Thank you, Victor. And also a very special thank you to Graham Clark, who created the amazing intro and outro music for this podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Celestial Citizen, and I hope you are, then check out celestialcitizen.com. You can also follow along on Twitter at Celestial Citizen and Instagram at The Celestial Citizen. And of course, be sure to sign up for the Celestial Citizen newsletter on Substack. You can find the link to all of these on our website. If you're interested in supporting the mission of Celestial Citizen, consider making a donation on our website, or you can always reach out to learn more about opportunities to sponsor this podcast. A major component of Celestial Citizen is feedback and public participation. We want to hear what you have to say, so let us know what you think about humanity's future in space and what it should look like. Please share your voice and your unique perspective on social media or if you prefer, all of the Celestial Citizen articles can also be found on Medium. 
So drop a comment and join the conversation. If you love today's podcast, please have your friends and family subscribe on whatever device or platform you listen to podcasts on and leave a stellar review so others can get hooked as well. That's all for now, Celestial Citizens. I'll be back next week for another episode. In the meantime, don't be afraid to take up space.